This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like yourselves worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So sign up today at www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get our next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. That's www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights for free. Listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hi, my name is Brian Lociallo. I am the co-founder, uh, partner, and executive producer at Riverside Entertainment. Uh, you might know me as the uh, producer, director, and editor of the documentary music film uh, Bluebird. I've also done some work with the show Nashville. Uh, it was at ABC before that. And currently, I am the head of development, all things development at Riverside Entertainment, which is a production company based in Nashville and Los Angeles that does everything from film and TV to commercial and uh, promo production. Brian Lociavo, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Chris Barkley, great to be here. Man, it's really, it's really awesome to have you. And you mentioned Bluebird in your introduction. I watched the documentary. I didn't want it to end. <laughs> oh, thanks, man. I didn't want it to end. I, I, I just... And I know I'm biased because I grew up in Nashville. They call they call that type of person a unicorn now uh, because I'm actually from here and grew up here and watched this whole thing blossom into what it is today. But I'm, I'm watching it. And as a musician, as a person who has just been in that Green Hills area where the Bluebird is my entire life, um, fantasizing myself about taking that stage. Um I just didn't want to end. I, I will admit too, I'm a big softy, <laughs> and there was a song or two in the middle, and my wife turns to me and she says, "Are you crying?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm gonna guess. Said, no, I'm not yeah. crying. I'm tired. I'm, I'm gonna guess. Daniel Towns got you because <laughs> I was weeping in the room when we recorded that. So that was the one, man. You. you nailed it. I don't blame you. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So I, I really would tell everyone listening to this, go watch the documentary Bluebird. You can watch it with ads if you prefer, I think, on, on YouTube. 
And where, where else can you see it right now? Yeah, I mean, the, the primary places to check it out are anywhere that you can buy or rent. So uh, if it's Apple or uh, Amazon, Comcast, I, pretty much anywhere that has the on-demand features. Um, we're working on a streaming deal. I believe there's a couple AVOD, like you said, uh, yeah. based places that, that carry it now. Uh, I'm not up to speed on all the latest, but the easiest is probably uh, to just hop on iTunes or Apple TV. Maybe. Yeah, this stuff happens like, sort of like uh low key like you know like one of our movies just showed up on youtube for free but it was through our normally i would call like youtube and say hey someone's jacking us yeah but this was like through our distributor and i was like oh yeah and and you say on youtube like you want to go check out and make sure that that's legit because we have had it a couple times where people have uh pirated it and put it up there and we've had to to, ch- to chase them the taylor swift element man they are uh they're all over it rabid fan base we had an issue with uh with actually her performance getting leaked somebody hacked in somebody from like argentina i think hacked into our vimeo account and ripped the movie wow. and just released her performance from the film uh, wow a rough cut too which was re- a, a real bummer because it wasn't even like the finished product but yeah it was it was a thing it's crazy there's all these like um pirates for good and pirates for bad it's it's really interesting um we had we check all of our movies about once a month and to see if they're being pirated and this one most time it's bad but one time we went on there and we found that someone had pirated our movie but they had done a review of the movie now this was in a foreign language right it's like somewhere in europe i don't know exactly which european language forgive me that's hilarious like they dubbed you it could tell by his tone it. in the comments. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That like you could hit the translate button, like in Google, like, Oh, this was a positive review. <laughs> so we just left it up there. Yeah. We're like, okay, use the film, use as many scenes as you want. Like you're gushing about our movie. Right. Great. Like that's, that's, that's wonderful. Let me rewind before I get too far ahead of myself For sure. and help this audience get a slightly deeper sense of who you are. I'm just going to read a short bio you know, it's the internet. You can tell me if anything needs to be admitted to or is incorrect. Sure. But uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get it started. Uh, Brian Lociavo is a filmmaker, songwriter, and co-founder of the Nashville and Los Angeles-based production company Riverside Entertainment. Specializing in music documentary, his past directing and producing credits include broadcast music specials for the television series Nashville and documentary films Bluebird and Midland, The Sonic Ranch, he lives in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee, and is head of development for Riverside Entertainment. And then you, Riverside is an award-winning company. We're going to talk a lot about Riverside as we go. But I do want to start in a different place, if you don't mind. Sure, please. How does a obsessed skateboarder turn into a filmmaker? Oh, God. Because my understanding yeah. is that you are... You were all in on skateboarding. Well, I'll say this. I did, I did skateboard for a little while and it's not, it's not as cool anymore or maybe it never was, but I was actually more into like the aggressive inline skating, Mm. (laughs) which uh, I think the skateboarding community kind of laughs at, but uh, you know, it's still, still marginally cooler than like the razor, you know, people riding around on razors in a skate park. But, um, but yeah, no, I, I, I was like fully down the rabbit hole of skating, um, both skateboarding and, and that I went to like skate camp at a place called Woodward in Pennsylvania. Woodward's the one yeah, man. like the, yeah. 
So yeah, that was really, you know, it was funny. I, in- You're being humble because I think to get into Woodward, you have to be the real deal. Yeah, I did. I, yeah, I'm a, I did. I was, <laughs> I was, I was way too serious about it as a kid. Um, I had, I had, you know, high hopes for getting sponsored and all that stuff, but uh, definitely wasn't good enough for that. But what I was, what I would, what I did catch the bug uh, was uh, making skate videos. So yeah, that was. It was kind of this perfect oh. confluence of events that happened uh, right around my, gosh, probably my freshman or uh, sophomore year of high school. I was like crazy into skating um, and found out that there was this like video production class in my high school, which I, I very much credit my high school looking at now understanding, you know, how arts programs and, and schools all over the country, especially public schools. I went to a public school um, yeah. are in jeopardy. You know, it's like budget cuts are happening and, and they're prioritizing academics and all of that's great, but arts obviously are important and, and especially important for people like me. Um, and we just had a, a completely cutting edge. It was kind of on that cusp of like the transition into digital for filmmaking. Um, it, you know, my high school had a, what at the time was called a media 100 system, which was kind of the precursor to final cut was like oh, Apple, wow. Apple's first, uh, nonlinear editing system. We were, you know, using like jazz discs for extra hard drive space, <laughs> no. you know, all kinds of stuff that, you know, a lot of the, the newer generation probably don't even know what that means. And you, and you grew up in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. I grew up outside of Philly, uh, a town yeah. called Westchester, Pennsylvania. Yep. Where Ben Margera is from, if you're a skateboarding fan, yep. there's a lot of uh, yep. a lot of good skateboarders that come out of there. But um, the whole jackass scene was was in my hometown. Um, but yeah, that that really that's where I caught the bug, and very early on, kind of knew that that's the path I wanted to take. You know, I think before my junior year, I knew I wanted to try to go to film school, um, and just everything behind the lens. You know, wanted to be a director. I really fell in love with the editing process. Uh, early on and, and saw that all the way through, you know, film school. And then, you know, it's, it's kind of been a singular focus all along. Uh, this is a thing that, that I feel like I'm good at and, and, and I'm passionate about and want to try to make a career out of. But it was really born out of skateboarding. My guess is that a lot of times when you're skateboarding, you skateboard with a crew. Yeah. And it, is it true that your crew basically trusted you with the filming and editing of everybody's skating? Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was the thing. It was, it was, uh, me and another guy named Phil. And, uh, I remember kind of my, one of my fondest memories of like, uh, the skate video era was we, we wanted to make like our definitive, like our crews, like skate, you know, everybody would, would have their part and, yeah, uh, yeah. and you know, <laughs> you got to pick the soundtrack, you know, that was, that was all about skate videos was like, you know, what was, what was the song that you had on and, and like your part. And, uh, we, we stayed up like he, he, he stayed over my place one night and we like stayed up all night with like two VCRs, RCA cables going everywhere, a CD player going into the VCR. Like, so we were doing it like almost like the old school film way of, of you were cutting VCR tape. Yeah. We were basically doing reel to reel on VCRs and so the, the quality was terrible. Cause every time we would make a dupe, it was like degrading the quality. Cause like, if anybody knows VCR, like that technology is, you know, ancient at this point, but, but it was fun. Cause we, you know, we, that was really like the best way to learn the, the logic behind what you're doing now on, you know, so quick and easy in, in like, you know, premiere or, or whatever you're using avid. 
Yeah. Um, the, the fundamentals behind that are that kind of real to real, like what is B-roll? B-roll is like when you cut from another thing onto whatever's playing now and you like inter, inter, you know, splice that in. And then how does, how does the music bed work? It's a separate layer of audio that you need to put on top, you know? So that was very much a, uh, kind of home, a DIY film school before film school. <laughs> and it's funny because in a way it's like your friends chose your career for you. For sure. Yeah. yeah it yeah. chose your life path for you. Like I, it's not the, exactly the same, but I remember I had a, a bunch of friends um, that went to Vandy, mm-hmm. including my, my business partner, Nick. He's from, that's where I met him at Vanderbilt university, but I didn't go to Vandy. Right. Like, like, so I had all these people around me that quite frankly, I was a little bit intellectually intimidated by. Uh, okay. Right. Yeah. Cause they were from all over the country and they were the smartest kids in their school. Right. And that's what they were doing there. And um, I'm just trying to catch up. But here I am. I'm part of this thing they were calling the Junto that they had sort of stole from Benjamin Franklin. And uh, I think he called it a Junta or maybe the correct conjugation was Junta, but he was calling it Junto because he didn't know. So anyway, we were in this thing. Right. And I was in it. I'm like, what am I doing here? What am I in this group for? Uh, maybe I'm not worthy. And they we had these get togethers where everybody would come back to town after they graduated. And here's what happened. We got in this hotel room and we decided, hey, you know, how can we make money? And they're like, well, we, you know, everyone agreed we have to just make money, you know, the Wall Street way. Like, let's make money. Let's invest in stuff. Well, it turns out when everybody is equally sort of yoked intellectually, they don't trust each other. Mm. <laughs> so, so they said, who in this room can we trust to not like leave with our money if we put it into a pot? And they're like, Chris. <laughs> He's too dumb to steal the money. <laughs> so like, I have a so like, here I am, like more to it than I, Chris. I said, guys, I have, I've got no fucking idea how to invest. I don't know what I'm doing. So they were, this is how, and this is, this is so different. Cause I grew up very modestly. Right. And most of my friends there did not. This is how loose they were. Cause it's something I could never imagine saying growing up. They said, well, that's fine. You'll just learn it. <laughs> they had no, they were cool just losing all the money as long as like somebody was trying to do something with it on the side. Right. Like it was like this extra ref stream. And that's how I learned how to invest. That's cool. Like they let me like lose money and they let me get us money and figure out the movement of the market and things like that. And I got to do it on somebody else's dime. And in a way they kind of chose a path for me uh, in, in one of my lines of business. It's so funny how, you know, our friend groups are more influential than our parents. Although I should ask you, what did your parents think about you going from something like skateboarding to filmmaking? Well, I think they were thrilled that, that, that skating wasn't my future, but, uh, (laughs) I was wondering, it was like, I'm not going to be a skateboarder, mom. Great. What are you going to be? But with filmmaker, (laughs) but with film school, I mean, they, they, um, Rightly so, you know, there was, there were several schools that I was looking at and they really wanted me to get a well-rounded education, uh, not necessarily pushing a fallback, not necessarily, you know, pushing a plan B cause they really wanted me, you know, you kind of have to go all in if you really want to do something, you can't have a foot out. Um, but they did, you know, it, I think it was also just from like a general education standpoint, didn't want me to be too narrow in my focus. So, 
Um, you know, I didn't go to like a liberal arts school. I went to a, you know, proper university. You went to Temple, right? Temple in Philly. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and yeah. And, and so that, but I really, one of, one of the things that you just said that, that really uh, resonates with me is, is the freedom to fail, I think is really key in anything in life. Um, especially yeah. if it's something new that you're trying to learn. Um, that I got, I, I got, I, my parents very much empowered me in that sense that they didn't put this pressure on me that like every, every project that I worked on, every opportunity that I pursued, it was, you know, if you don't succeed right away, uh, that it's okay to fail. Uh, and that, and that that's a natural part of the process. Uh, my dad's a very entrepreneurial guy. He actually ran the entrepreneurship center at Drexel university for a few years, um, several years. Uh, and, uh, and so that spirit's always been in the family and kind of encouraged, which obviously entrepreneurship, there's a lot of inherent kind of trial and error and failure that, that goes along with that. But you saying that like, you know, you're, yes, it was your friend group, but also that freedom that you had to make mistakes and, and learn by learn via those mistakes. Similarly, you know, for me with the, just going back to those skate videos, it's like, you know, there was, yeah. you know, it was all messy I and mean, it was a bunch of like, you know, trial and error and, and figuring it out as you go. And I think while education is important, doing the thing uh, and getting your hands dirty and, and, and kind of letting it be messy and, and destructive uh, gets you to the right place. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It's, um, it's a really good pull by you. Because at the end of the day, if you don't make the videos, they don't have videos. So who cares if it's messy? Right. Like we, we want the videos. So like, let's just, let's just live with the learning process, the curve. Um, you do have a co-founder in Riverside Entertainment. Uh, how did you, is it pronounced Molino? Yep. Jeff Molino. Yeah. How did you, how did you meet Jeff Molino? Sure. Yeah. And it's, it's three partners. Uh, Jeff and I, I guess are technically the co-founders, but, but Pastor Alvarado, who's our third partner, uh, was, was kind of always a part of the plan. So, um, I hate to, how does he feel about being left out of the (laughs) (laughs) question? You should have him on next. Uh, No, but, but uh, the kind of story behind the, the, uh, the origins of Riverside are that the three of us all worked together at ABC and, and Disney ABC television group. It was what it was called at the time. Um, in LA met there, uh, doing, uh, you know, again, a really cool department within ABC at the time it was called the digital ABC digital or Disney ABC television group, digital studio. Um, and it was at it, kind of in the early days of when all of the networks were trying to figure out streaming and their online presence. It was before any of the OTT apps. So it, this was like, right as ABC was starting to, um, simultaneously release their shows for streaming through their website, through abc.com. Um, mm-hmm. and, and they were trying to figure out that mechanism in addition to like traditional broadcasts and cable. And, um, and so there was this kind of like wild West mentality of like, we're trying to figure out this whole digital thing. We want to drive people to the website. We need content to support our linear shows. So here guys, like, here, you know, young team of creators, like here's a bunch of, you know, resources, go, go make it. So Jeff was an in-house DP. I was an in-house kind of director, editor, producer, Pastor is in a similar role as mine. And they, you know, to their credit, just kind of let us play around and try things out and get messy. And some of it worked, some of it didn't, but working in, you know, a pretty big playground with some pretty heavy, you know, 
hitters, you know, being in a big net, being in a big network and a big, uh, corporation like Disney. Um, but also having kind of this autonomy to be really creative and experimental. And one of the things that came out of that was I pitched an idea for a show, a, a music documentary series that was a digital series in support of the show Nashville as a musician. As soon as I saw that pilot, I immediately knew I wanted to work on that show. I had family in Kentucky, but not, I hadn't spent much time in Nashville, but it just seemed like a cool spot. And, yeah, you know, uh, so they went for it. Uh, we did basically like a songwriter story. It was like a, the story of how the song was written and then ended up on the show. So we would interview the songwriters. They would do an acoustic version, kind of like the, what their work tape was of the song. And then we would right. kind of tell the story of how it was selected by the music supervisor and then went into production for the show and how it ended up in whatever scene it was in, in the episode. And that got me going out to Nashville and, and Jeff was a little bit a part of that. Um, he had done a bunch of stuff with the CMA awards, which is another ABC property. So he was coming back and forth to Nashville for, you know, CMA awards and CMA fest. And he knew the city really well. Um, so through that series, that's what ended up, you know, when you mentioned the, the broadcast specials, that was kind of an offshoot of that digital series that kind of grew into something bigger. Um, but really introduced me to the songwriting community here, the music industry here, and just absolutely fell in love with the city. And that eventually ended up being how Jeff left first, just for personal reasons. He came out here just to be a freelance, uh, cinematographer and about a year into it, saw the opportunity, saw the amazing community that was here. Uh, the, the crew, the creators, everybody that was here and, and, and how it was kind of becoming this it city that everyone yeah, knows yeah, yeah. now, but at that time was, it was just starting to bubble up and uh, convinced me about a year later to, to leave ABC and, and come out here and start Riverside with him. And then we uh, convinced Pastor to, to jump ship about a year later and, and stay in LA and, and run the operation out of there. So now Jeff and I are here, Pastor is there and we're kind of split between the two cities. That explains the LA branch of, of Riverside Entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I am curious how you got the gig. How did you, and for the, you know, for this audience, yeah. those listening, you know, how did you actually get on at ABC and Disney? Is there a story you can share about that? And then, and how was Jeff so confident that the three of you guys would work well together after only having worked on sort of one thing together? Absolutely. It, it, it's, it's a good story because it's, it's one that I always, you know, if I'm talking to like, you know, films, film school kids or, or interns or anything like that. It's, it's one of the great lessons that I had. Um, and I almost missed it. I, I credit my wife with most of my good decisions in life, but, uh, but we were, uh, you know, out of Philly, out of film school, I started a, a little post-production operation in Philly doing like legal videos and, uh, it was pretty <laughs> lucrative for like a 22 year old. And, uh, but I, you know, I still had dreams. I had scripts that I had under my arm at that time and like was determined to move out to LA and be a big writer director. So, um, got married, uh, and we just packed our bags without jobs or anything and just moved across country and moved to LA. My wife uh, quickly got a, a very stable and well-paying gig while I was fluttering around trying to figure out, uh, the industry and all of that. So for the first, you know, five years or so in LA, I, I made the decision, you know, it was kind of like go the assistant route and try to like kind of ingratiate myself into like the agency management world or just find a day job to pay the bills that I can then, you know, have time to write and try to pursue the career thing. I right. uh, decided to, to go that route. So 
I got a, a job, a day job, uh, filming depositions, legal depositions. So I could kind of just press record, be in the room. And then I would kind of secretly be writing my screenplay on the side. Um, sorry to any of the attorneys that might be watching. Um, I was paying attention kind of, and, uh, yeah. And then, and then at the same time, uh, this is kind of where the lesson comes in. I was, uh, kind of roped into through a friend, this sketch comedy group, which I don't consider myself, you know, an expert in comedy. Uh, but it was just something fun to do. It was a little community of people, um, and got involved with that. It was kind of in the early days of YouTube. So we were trying to do like the kind of funny or die thing, yeah. making those types of movies or, uh, like comedic sketch videos. And, uh, one of the guys in that group, one of the actors in that group had a gig at ABC and, uh, they had an opening for this like ABC family morning show, uh, thing. And as if they, they needed a producer for it and it was just a freelance gig. And he said, you know, would you be interested? And at that time I was like this close on a pilot that I had written. And I was like this close on a feature. And I was working with this producer who had optioned all this stuff. And I was, you know, I was so close to doing the real thing that I wanted to do that, this digital like morning show ABC family thing felt like beneath me. And my wife quickly uh, grounded me and said, no, no, you're going to take this gig. You're going to take this paycheck. This could lead to something better. And, uh, and I did take it. And that then led to another gig with them that then led to a full-time job with them that then let, you know, then it all unfolded from there. So I think the lesson out of that is to be open. You know, it's not always going to be the direct line that you draw for yourself. It's going to be, it's going to zig. It's going to zag. It may not even look the way you wanted it to. I, I thought for sure I wanted to be a screenwriter and then go the TV route and be like a staff writer and then a showrunner. And the more I learned about the business, the more I realized that wasn't a good lifestyle for me. I, it's not what I enjoy doing. Um, I would still love, I still love to provide the opportunity to, to scratch that itch when I can, but in reality, it's more of the, the, both the business and production side of it as well. So more like producing and, and directing that kind of thing. Um, so, so yeah, just to, you know, surround yourself with a community of people, like find your tribe when you're, when you're starting out in this business, I was able to do that. And that then, you know, led to a lot and all of the people that were part of that, that like sketch comedy crew. Now I've gone on to do great things. One of them is, you know, uh, a network executive at, at ABC. One of them, uh, is what, what one of them is, uh, an, a very successful actor. Now one of the, you know, like all of them went on to do great things. So like at the time it may feel small and you may want to have cool friends that are like, you know, already doing the thing that you want to do. But once you find your tribe, it's like rising tide lifts all boats and eventually right. you'll have your people and, and, you know, you can each kind of help each other, pull each other up as you go. That's a great story. I'm, I am curious if, if you could share any stories of what it was like to be a writer in L.A. during the strike. Oh, like man. having that timing of moving out there. And look, and right now the WGA is up against the contract. Yeah. Uh, expiration right now. So maybe there's a strike coming, maybe not. Yeah. But but you have firsthand experience having moved to LA during a strike. Yeah. It was weird because I, uh, I wasn't WGA obviously cause I was a nobody. Uh, and so like part of me was kind of like, is this my opportunity? Like everybody needs scripts right now. Like I'll be that guy. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, I, I, uh, it, it was weird. Yeah. It was a weird time. And, and like 
I know several people I had, I kind of had a project that it happened to, but I know a, a few people that like had projects set up and then that happened and it, and it kind of derailed their like big moment. So fortunately for me, it, I never had it happen like that. It was an interesting thing to experience. Like my first introduction to the business was this like huge, you know, kind of tectonic shift that happened and this kind of major disruption. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it, it, it fortunately didn't, didn't affect me a ton. Um, but I did have a couple like, you know, similar kind of fate things get in the way a few times. There was a, we had a show, uh, uh, the producer that I was working with at the time, it was, it was like, it was the pilot that I, that we were like, we knew like, this is unequivocally, if this is going to sell, this is going to be the one she knew what network she wanted to take it to. She had meetings set up. I was like just finishing the final touches on the pilot script and just to, you know, kill time. I went on deadline. Uh, it was just kind of like, you know, the nervous tick you do to, to like procrastinate. And the show was about a female fixer. There were no shows on TV about fixers, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Shonda Rhimes new deal, you know, under her deal with ABC, the new fixer show about a female fixer named Olivia Pope. It's called scandal. And then like Ray Donovan happened like right after that. So like suddenly now there's like two fixer shows. So that kind of left us dead in the water, but that stuff always happens. That's why you just got to keep, you gotta, you gotta be prolific. You gotta be diversified and just, you know, be ready for, for anything to happen. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. There's a lot of writers that get paranoid in those situations. Oh yeah. Where they're sure that their pitch was taken and repurposed. Yeah. Oh, that was my fixer show. Right. 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 And you're like, no, it really wasn't your fixer show. There's a lot of people working on the same thing at the same time. And it's really about execution and your ability to implement an idea. You can't, you can't like copyright or patent an idea well, you can patent an idea, but you have to put it on paper, but you can't like copyright an idea in, in the, in the world of writing. Yeah, man. It's the same thing in music. You see it happening a lot with, with all these like, you know, claims that people stole melodies and songs and stuff. Yeah. It's like, everything's derivative, man. Like we all are products of our, of like the pop culture and our devices, uh, and, you know, what we're consuming, the content that we're consuming. And although I will say that Olivia Rodrigo thing seemed that seemed like she was spot on to Paramore. Paramore, that yeah, like that one was. I mean, really, and, and she like she really got it. it. And was like, okay, you're right. Uh, but even then, like, I, I believe that that might have been unintentional. And they're like, yeah, this melody, this sounds great. Like, not realizing that they heard it before. But yeah, there's. Um, yeah, maybe. You know, it's yeah. funny when I did those legal video like depositions. I sat through because it was LA. I, I I was in a lot of like entertainment uh, litigation cases mm-hmm. and, and a lot of copyright infringement, like a couple really big, you know, cases of people thinking that their, their movies were stolen, their, their scripts were stolen. And some of them felt like they had merit. So I don't want to, you know, discredit it, but it certainly seems more the case that, that we're all just living in the same society and ideas spring out of things that happen. And, you know, there's going to be similarities. There's going to be overlap. Yeah, that's right. Cause it's happened to me before, like, uh, as a, in my time in songwriting, I can remember writing a song and then the guy in my group at the time, his name was Corey. And he was like, Hey, that's that song. And I'm like, no, it's not. That's the, that's, I just wrote this. Like, I just wrote this. He goes, he played the song and I started doing the vanilla ice thing. Where it's like, see how that one's like, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> and see how mine's like, dun, 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 dun. And it's like, 
I couldn't believe that I really had been influenced by this song, but subconsciously. Yeah, hundred percent. I just wrote the song, and and the melody was great, and it turned out to be this other song. Yep. And we just scrapped it, and I'm like, but I, but at the moment, I was super defensive. Yeah. Well, because of my heart, I, had, I wrote an original. We had a song uh, that I wrote, I co-wrote, and and I was convinced when we finished it because it was re- it was a really great song, and I'm not going to say what it was because it did actually go on to get cut, but. Uh, <laughs> But we at the end of, at the end of writing it, I'm like I know like, I know that this is another song, man. Like I just know that this melody, like it sounds too familiar, it sounds too classic. And he's like, no, it just means that it's. And then I was like, I'm telling you, it's a Brian Adams song. And I literally went through like Brian Adams' entire catalog trying to figure out what song it was that this was similar to. Never found it. Was convinced like, all right, we're we're clear. Like whatever, everything happened. I no joke, like. A month ago, I was just listening to the radio and a song came on and I was like, that's the one I thought it sounded like. Now, I think we're still okay. I don't think it was like close enough that there's going to be any sort of like litigation around this. And the song that was cut, certainly it wouldn't be worth litigation to, to yeah. kind of lost revenue. But but yeah, it's funny. Like I, I, I knew that there was something in my head that sounded somewhat familiar, but it's, sometimes it's just subconscious, man. You, you have no idea where it's coming from. Yeah, it's true. And and your point about it sounding different on the cut was a point you made in the documentary Bluebird or the point that was made, which is when you hear a writer in the round sing, you're actually getting sort of the authentic feeling, original sort of the beta feeling or maybe even the alpha feeling uh, that 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 caused that song to become what it was. Yeah. And when the artist gets it, they have to put their shine on it. Yep. And then it's really produced and it's really sort of shiny. And, and what happens in that process is kind of the, the difference between listening to an MP3 and a vinyl record. Right. Uh, you can't really put your finger on it, but you just know that uh, that didn't really happen to them, although they're very freaking talented and convincing that it did. And then when you hear the songwriter sing it, it's like it's the last song they're ever going to sing. It's like, oh, my God, like they're. They're they're reliving this moment that was probably trauma. And, you know, I've always said that, you know, I was given the gift of of getting piano lessons young so I could or young enough so I could play this for the rest of my life. And it became my therapist. Yeah, because yeah, I don't need therapy because I have a piano and I can just go sing about it or play and get that all out. So it's, it's really powerful. I do want to talk about the story of how you got the opportunity to, to do the bluebird documentary. But before that, I want to stick on ABC a little bit longer because you did karaoke for the bachelorette. Is that correct? Karaoke for the bachelorette on ABC. I don't know. Did we do that? (laughs) What describe it a little bit more. Uh, well, apparently I sing karaoke I, yeah. with the bachelorette. At yeah. With the bachelorette. Broadway, but <laughs> yeah. Can you tell a story of you singing? This crack research team, Brian, <laughs> uh, for the bachelorette and, and, and then talk about like the process of co-writing songs for those musicians playing on the show Nashville. So just those two things. Well, the, 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 if, if I'm thinking of the same thing that you're thinking of, that was just a drunk night after a CMA fest. Uh, <laughs> no, it was, uh, it, it, is that what you're talking about? Just singing on yeah. Broadway with the best. So yeah, it was, um, oh gosh, it was, uh, <laughs> 
So yeah, it was when I was with ABC. Uh, we were we were at the show at, at, at uh, sorry at, at uh, Nissan Stadium, and uh, after the concert was over, everybody was like, "What are we doing? We're going to Broadway." And the, the, our crew that night was like, uh, I think I think Jeff might have been with us. Uh, I forget who was out for that, but um, but I know it was uh, what was her last name? Andy. It was the name of the Bachelorette. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, like Dorfman, I think Andy Dorfman, something like that. And then, uh, J- my buddy, Jason Thompson, who is, uh, he, at the time he was on general hospital. Um, he's on a different show now, like young and the restless or one of those, but, uh, he's an actor and he was out for, for it as well, doing some stuff, uh, doing some like signings or whatever for ABC. Uh, he and I, after this, after that night, that was my first night meeting him, but he and I ended up becoming buddies and ended up co-writing some stuff because he's a musician, um, back in LA together. Uh, so it's all coming full circle, but, uh, but yeah, we ended up on, uh, I forget which karaoke bar on Broadway. Uh, I think it was, uh, what was, what's the blue something anyway? Yeah. 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 Oh, I, I, I know, I know friends in both places, uh, karaoke yeah. with, with Andy and, uh, it was late night. She was, I think, actively the bachelorette at the time. So like the PR team, uh, when we, when we exited the bar, kind of stumbling around, we're, we're not very happy that we had kept her out so late in a public, very public setting and kind of like <laughs> quickly tried to usher her back to her hotel. But yeah, that was a, that was a fun night. Uh, and then can she other, sing? sorry, God, can she sing? Ah, uh, I will plead the fifth on that. I don't, <laughs> I don't think any of us could in that state at that night. Yeah. Well, yeah. But this is a good segue into the next thing about the co-writing for the show Nashville. Sure, sure. I think a lot of people will be interested how you get the opportunity to do that. Sure. But also the point is you can sing and you can play. So how did you get that opportunity and what was that like? Yeah. So uh, I will I will credit uh, two of my favorite people on planet Earth, uh, Don Soler and Frankie Pine. Don is the uh, head of music for what was then ABC studios now ABC signature, but kind of all, all of the, like, you know, ABC television, um, oversees the music for that. And so she was, she's the one that I pitched the idea of the music doc series to at ABC. And it turned out that she and T-Bone Burnett, who was the executive music producer of the season, the first couple seasons had already been kind of talking about something similar. So she and I quickly became, you know, soulmates in, in what we were creating, uh, wanting to create her being, you know, so passionate about music, me being a musician and so passionate about combining my two loves of music and film and really bonded over that. Frankie Pine was the music supervisor, uh, on Nashville, which is no small task with a show that's that heavy in music and not just licensing music. It, it's all about, you know, original origination of music and, and kind of organically weaving it into, the stories of, of each episode. And right now I'll, I'll, I'll give her a little plug. She's, she's a music supervisor on Daisy Jones and the six. So that's, that's, that's coming out right now. So, um, she's still crushing it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the story is that, uh, I kept it a secret that I was a songwriter for most of the time that I was working on the series until I did, uh, there was a song called this town that was written by, um, three writers, uh, Jada Dreyer, uh, Andrew Rollins, and I'm forgetting the third guy's name. Um, I feel bad that I'm forgetting this, but, uh, so Andrew Rollins, the writer, we, we shot an episode of, of our series called on the record for that and got to know him just on set and found out that he lived in, in, uh, studio city 
which is right next to where I was living at the time in Toluca Lake in, in LA and just seemed like an approachable guy, you know, really nice guy. And so I finally worked up the nerve. I was like, all right, this is the guy I'm going to ask. And so I sent him a note and said, Hey, this, I know this is going to sound cheesy, but I do a little writing. Would you ever consider co-writing with me? And I had never, I had never written with another person before. At that point, it was just like, you know, kind of a side thing that I, you know, side passion thing. I'd written some songs myself and, uh, but I, but through the show and seeing the Nashville scene, like totally started understanding co-writing and, and the importance of it. And, uh, and he very graciously, uh, agreed to listen to a few of my songs and I guess saw something there and we had breakfast the next morning and talked a little bit. And so then when I got back to LA, we got together and the first song that we wrote together ended up being a cut on the show. So, um, wow. he helped me get it to Frankie. I think he obviously legitimized me in, in Frankie and Don's eyes, but, uh, it was a song called surrender that uh, Raina James and Deacon Claiborne, uh, Chip Essen and Connie Britton sang at the Bluebird Cafe. Uh, so it was a it was a, a big moment. So that kind of got me in the door as a songwriter for the show. And then I don't know why I did air quotes as a songwriter for the show. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and then Frankie uh, very generously invited me to. Um, she first invited me to one at her place in uh, Thousand Oaks in, in L.A she did like a writer's retreat camp thing where she would invite some of the writers, uh, the songwriters that she had worked with for the show, had them all come to her place uh, for a day and with, with Callie Corey and, and some other uh, producers from the show. And they kind of gave us the upcoming storylines and potential song needs. And then they paired us up with other writers and go off and, you know, see what you can write that day. And then we would perform it at the end of the day. It was a really cool experience. And uh, that first day, I got paired with a guy named Philip LaRue, who has now become a really close friend of mine. Uh, one of our songs from that session almost made it on the show, uh, but ended up not. But then when I moved to Nashville, uh, in partnership with Big Yellow Dog, which is a big publisher in town, um, they, uh, they hosted another songwriting camp. And uh, Frankie again invited me, and she paired me with a, a, an amazing writer named Keelan Donovan, who's signed to Big Yellow Dog. We wrote two songs that day and both of the songs made it on the show. Uh, so that was a pretty, pretty surreal. It's such a unique experience too, because I think most people's experience, both in music and in film, I think their experience and idea of how you get music onto a show is through sync licensing. Right. And the way you did it for most was, shows. Yeah. was so was so cool and organic and inside it's like i think it's the way people would want it to happen yeah oh it was like a, it was like a romance yeah it's like it's like a love story of like me and this this it, show and and they were like because the weirdest thing about it, it was so meta it was so meta because we ended up doing an, an episode of our music doc series about the song that I wrote that got on the show. And it was like that one was super meta because you were like now I'm behind you know now I'm in front of the camera from being behind the camera. But uh, it was really weird because I got to go on set. Um, uh, what was really cool is Tim Lauer, Buddy Miller produced the first song, Surrender, and I was still in L.A., so I didn't get to come to the session, which really bums me out because Buddy's a freaking icon. And, you know, yeah. being in the studio to see him produce a song that I wrote would have been would have been pretty awesome. But uh, Tim Lauer, once I was in Nashville for the last two, um, graciously invited me into the studio, and I got to see that process. Having been in the studio and like shot them do it for other songs, that was pretty surreal. And then being on set to see them shooting the scene of the song, um, and and like some of the actors that I had like at that point become 
you know, friends with just having been on set so much. They're like, Hey man, what are you doing here today? I didn't know you guys were shooting. I'm like, yeah, we're not shooting today. I actually wrote that song that you just sang. He's like, what? So that was, yeah. And the whole thing is, is, is kind of unreal. Yeah. Unreal. Yeah. Super meta too. It reminds me Super of meta. And I thank Frankie Pine and Don Soler every day for those opportunities. Yeah. It's, it's amazing what happens when you just ask and you just, and right. you just get it. But, um, yeah. It reminds me of this guy. There's this guy and I think it's with Elon Musk, but there's this guy, it might be another celebrity, but he, he's a fan and right. he takes a picture with him everywhere he goes. But when he takes the picture, he's always holding a picture of the previous picture. Oh, it's interesting. So there's a picture out there on Twitter. If, if it's Elon, it's somebody else, but, but this, there's a, there's a picture of this guy where he's taking a picture of him holding a picture of them two, holding a picture of them two, holding a picture of them two, holding a picture of them two. Wow. And if you zoom in, <laughs> you just keep seeing pictures of the guy holding a picture of the previous picture. And it's nuts. And he's going to keep doing this until he dies, apparently. Wow. And he's going to end up with this sort of super meta picture that'll probably sell for millions of dollars one day if it's, if it's blown up. And it's like a nice quality picture of him holding a hundred other pictures of meeting Elon or whoever, if it's not Elon, it's somebody else. But anyway, that made me think of that. So for this international audience who may not be aware, can you just briefly describe the significance of the Bluebird Cafe and tell the story of how you got the the opportunity to do this documentary? Sure. Sure. yeah, it's kind of hard to understate the significance of a place that you would probably drive by and not even notice. Um, it's, mm-hmm. as you know, uh, in a strip mall in, in Green Hills, which is a <laughs> suburb of Nashville. It's it's in a very unassuming place. It's like, you know, next to a barber shop and a dry cleaner and a beauty salon. And uh, yeah, the, the significance is just that it it... it, it very organically became a kind of proving ground for songwriters and and a community center almost for songwriters in Nashville as in a rite of passage. Um, But the thing that really struck me about it that I didn't even really understand, I knew from the show and then from what I learned, the significance of just the things that have come out of there, like the careers that have been birthed there. I think that was that's the, that's the headline, right? Is that this is the place where Garth Brooks was discovered and sign his record deal. This is the place where Faith Hill was discovered. This is the place where Taylor Swift was discovered. This is the place where, you know, you can go on a, on a list of, of a list genre defining artists that have come out of this place. Um, but the thing that really kind of struck me that a lot of people don't realize is that it, it, it is like, it is committed to being a shelter for songwriters and a safe place for them to practice their craft, to find their tribe that we talked about earlier. And even more so, almost more important is a place for them to always come back to, no matter if they're in the sunset of their career and they're not getting all the cuts that they used to, it's still a place that they can go and play their hits and kind of get that recognition, but also to try out new stuff and just have a place to come and perform. And so to describe it to somebody that doesn't, that doesn't understand uh, what we're talking about, the whole place is probably like 
I think it might on paper be 2000 square feet, but the actual room that, that, that like the performance of the venue room is probably like 1500 square feet, maybe 1400 square feet. It's, it's dingy. It's got drop ceiling. It's, uh, you know, it's cramped. There's just normal table, like vinyl tablecloths on like round tables, square tables with like rickety old wooden chairs it's got pew like church pews in a corner. Um, and the thing that's really unique about it, it does have like a little stage and stage is kind of in air quotes because it's only about, you know, six inches off the ground. Uh, yeah, that's true. and some of the shows are on a stage, which is kind of in a more typical like coffee shop type environment. But what they kind of trademarked as their thing is called in the round where in the middle of the room, uh, there'll be four or five songwriters that just sit in a circle with their guitar or their piano and the audience sits among them. So you're, they're kind of just like plopped in the middle of the audience. And so you're, you know, if you, if it's a night that Garth Brooks stops by and wants to play in the round, you, you may be, you know, two yeah. inches away from his elbow as he's playing guitar. Uh, and you know, he may spit on you when he's singing. <laughs> like it's that, no, it, it really is like that. Yeah. That close. Um, and everything that is performed there primarily is, is like fully acoustic, just the purest version of the song. So it's just guitar, vocal, piano, vocal. It's kind of uh, the, the deconstructing the song that you've heard on the radio, like you said, in its purest form, the songwriter in the moment that they wrote it kind of in its, in its, uh, Genesis is, is, is how you get to hear it. So it's, you know, it's, it's like harkening back to like the MTV unplugged kind of vibes, but like yeah, yeah. more so it, it's, it's just this like super acoustic. But I think it predated MTV unplugged. Oh, for sure. It did. Yeah. 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 So how did you get the opportunity to do this incredible documentary? So through the show Nashville, which the Bluebird Cafe is, is kind of a central character and, and location in the show. Um, they ended up actually building a replica of it uh, on a sound stage because it was just, it's, as I now know all too well, very difficult to shoot in such a small room uh, <laughs> without being able to move walls and, you know, light from above and all kinds of stuff. Um, but yeah, the, the, uh, the president and uh, GM, COO, CEO, and pretty much everything she runs the Nashville, her name's Erica Wallen Nichols. Uh, I had gotten to know her through having shot there a few times for the stuff that we were doing for ABC. And we just kind of hit it off and, uh, we had stayed in touch. I had bugged her for tickets a couple times, and uh, and we, I, my business partner Jeff and I, happened to be in uh, London for the Country to Country Festival. It's a country music festival that they do every year in London, uh, shooting some stuff for the CMA team, the Country Music Association, and uh, was kind of like flipping through the the uh, the the agenda and like things that were going on around the festival and i saw that they were doing like a bluebird cafe satellite songwriter showcase thing in, in there and so i texted in london, erica, in london. so i texted yeah. erica and said hey are you in london she's like yeah me and roger has been uh are you know are here are you guys here i'm like yeah we should get dinner so we we went and got dinner at the o2 arena which is where it was the following night and uh you know, it's just like a general catch up, like hadn't seen you in a while, good time. And at the end of dinner, right around when dessert showed up, Erica got really serious. We're like, oh, what's going on here? And she's like, so I want to talk to you guys about something. She's like, it's the 35th anniversary of the Bluebird this year. I've tried 
several times and several people have tried and reached out and wanted to do a documentary, like the definitive documentary on the cafe. Would you guys be interested in doing that? She's like, just having worked with you, you know, I, I, I think you get it. Like you're, you know, I know you're a songwriter, Brian. Like I, I think you, you could be good stewards of the story, which was completely humbling and, and like shocking to me that, that she would consider us in that, in that way. Um, but, uh, immediately went home that night, like wrote up a pitch, <laughs> started working on a budget. was like, I'm not letting this, this opportunity slip. Yeah, by. Yeah. And so we had, we had, yeah. we were like off to the races the next day, but it was a dream project. It was, it was, uh, it was pretty unreal that, that, that she would trust us with, with that. And, um, it's, it was, a, it was a burden, you know, a heavy weight to bear through the whole process of making sure that I lived up to that and, and, and did it justice. Uh, but hopefully we did. You really did. And it just goes to show that it's really important to, to put yourself out there, go to the festivals, uh, whether it be a music festival or a film festival, go there and don't just go there and, and, and post yourself on the wall and be better than others or whatever, like go out network, shake hands, have that beer. And we've said that from day one, like, you know, every deal that we've been a part of, or anytime we've seen someone be successful, it was like, they had the gumption to just ask the person that was from Showtime or stars or HBO, can I just buy you a beer? And of course they want a beer because they've been in a suit all day on a panel and uh, they're there to have a good time. So it's like, let's, let's have a good time with it. And um, it just goes to show again, that, that there is like sort of this rev gen side of, of festivals, but there's also this necessity to festivals that lives outside of submission fees and all that, where it's an absolute necessity for the art artistic community. So you know, I really appreciate you, you sharing that. I do want to get into some of the technical uh, just briefly sure. uh, for, for the folks listening. So this will just be a few questions on the, the, the reality of, I mean, you mentioned pitch and budget. It's kind of in that realm. So I wonder for you, what is your go-to for location procurement? Oh, good question. Um, well, you know, most of the time now uh, we would have a location manager that would kind of, run that for us. Um, but Actually, let me, let me ask you a better question sure. around that. How do you know, what do you look for in a location that you, where you say that coffee shop's better than that coffee shop, or this is better than that? What do you, what are you looking for? Is there anything well, there's, particular? There's, there's a lot of factors. I mean, you know, you first obviously want to kind of judge it by how it's going to look on camera and like what your, what your goals are for the shoot. Is it, you know, a sit down conversation, in which case you want to make sure that it's got the right, like, you know, acoustics in the room for good audio. You want to make sure that you've got enough natural light. So you're not having to bring a bunch of grip and electric equipment in to light it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of like first making sure that it has like, you know, are you looking for something rustic and kind of like wooden? Are you looking for something sterile and more modern and kind of bright, you know? So that aesthetically, you know, and, and from that standpoint, like how it's going to appear for the purposes of what you're trying to shoot. And then there's just a ton of like logistics stuff that then go into it too, of like, you know, what kind of location fee are they looking for? Do they have parking? Can they close down? Are they staying open? If they're staying open, how like, can they turn off the music? Cause you can't license any music that's playing and it's terrible for audio continuity and that kind of stuff. So that, that then you kind of go into like all of the logistics side of it. If it's a big production, you know, 
typically it's going to be like parking power, like where are we setting up catering crafty? <laughs> like where are we yeah, yeah. putting the trailers, that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so a lot of factors, but it always, you know, starts with, does it have the right look for what the director is going for? The DP is going for Very, very good. And in a sit down sort of documentarian, uh, uh, situation or documentary set, what is your go-to gear? Can you talk about brand camera lens? Yeah. I mean, you know, when there's budget, we always love the Alexa, uh, you know, various forms of that was the, the new LFs or the, you know, the Alexa mini was kind of like our go-to for, for quite a while. Um, red's got some great cameras, but I'll tell you that the, uh, our kind of secret weapon, uh, from a, you know, budget, you know, best bang for your buck standpoint are the, uh, the black magic, uh, cameras, the black magic really? wow. pro, the black magic pocket six K like just, you know, phenomenal cameras that, that produce an image that most people wouldn't be able to discern the difference between it and like an Alexa. I know that that's, there's probably a lot of GPs that would disagree with me, but we shot the bluebird on the black magic and, um, you know, we have a home reno show now that we shoot it on. Uh, so it's just a great, you know, budget option for like, if you're a, if you're a kid, that would be like your pick for an indie for sure. If you're an indie filmmaker, go get the black magic. You know, don't have a ton of resources or you know parents that are going to buy you an eighty thousand dollar camera. Uh, yeah. you can you can buy a, you know a brand new Urso. You know, once you've got like a full package put together, it's probably going to run you you know ten ten thousand plus depending on lensing and stuff like that. But you know, the base just the the camera body is only about like five grand, um, which so even know, less than a C seventy then. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the only comparable from like a camera standpoint would probably be like a, you know, Sony FS seven or like a C 300 or something like that, but, or Canon. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, they, in my opinion, they kind of have a more, more of like a, you know, video leaning look. Uh, Again, I'm probably going to ruffle some feathers, feathers with this purist that, that love Sony or love Canon, but um, I thought, I, I feel like the black magic gives you closer to that kind of like cinema, you know, Alexa red kind of look than, than those do. Than those do. Got it. No, that's great. That's great. And, uh, I mean, you gotta, you gotta say what's real to you. I, I think that's fine. Everybody knows kind of the three main players of Avid, Final Cut and Premiere, as sort of your post software, is there any software that sort of sits as a middleman between what you shot and, and post that most people don't think about that you like? Hmm. Good question. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm now a premiere guy. I was a final cut guy until they changed. (laughs) Uh, You know, I did the, uh, the avid thing for a minute. Um, you know, all great systems, they all have their pros and cons. Um, but I would say, I mean, to answer your question, I'm not sure if, if it's like ancillary, like additional software that kind of sits between, I mean, there's, you know, shot put pro is a great thing to get, uh, if you're trying, you know, to DIT or, you know, making sure that you get from shooting to editing cleanly without any kind of, you know, damaged files or, or, uh, lost data or anything like that. Uh, which is a, essentially a software that allows you to copy to two hard drives uh, at the same time. So you have redundancy as well as it, it oh, has cool. like a built-in 
you don't, it's not just a drag and drop. So it has like built in mechanisms to make, make sure that it all uh, transfers properly. Pluralize is a great tool uh, for syncing. How do you spell that? Plural, the word okay. plural, and then eyes, like two eyes. Um, uh, but it's, a, it's a, I believe, a Maxon now bought Red Giant. It was Red Giant, I believe. But uh, it's, a, it's a Maxon part of their suite. Uh, but it's some of, some of the tools of it are now built into to Premiere and, and some of the other uh, things to be able to kind of sync multiple cameras with audio at the same time. That's, that's really where it shines. Is it's like you can basically dump all of your A-cam and your B-cam and your audio into it and just hit sync. And it'll automatically like, you know, it's pretty cool to watch. Uh, it'll automatically sync all of it and put it into a timeline for you and whatever uh, software you're in. Um, so, like I said, some of them now do that themselves, uh, kind of natively, but that was one that was, and, and that's just sort of the nature of technology too, Brian. It's like a lot of times we have an app or someone builds an app and they're like, this is a great app. What a, what a wonderful platform. And they find out their platform is just a feature. Right. Right. And it's like, uh, cause like clubhouse is probably the latest, most sort of notable victim of this where. They were sure they had this entire platform that nobody had. And immediately every social media network just showed them it was a feature. Right. Like, okay, we'll just let our users go live. Yeah. No, yeah. no big whoop. And so now they're scrambling to sort of like sort of feature enrich their platform to make it a little bit different and, and have more creator options and things like that. Yeah. Um, but you're, but you're right. Eventually, you know, the big boys are going to come in and sort of suck, you know, those, those, platforms up and just turn them into features and, and, and as value adds to their, you know, monthly fee or whatever. The, the other thing I would say kind of to your question, but a little bit of a deviation from it is that, <laughs> I mean, if you want to go completely away from, you know, the, that those types of software or again, going back to like camera choice and that kind of thing, man, there's apps now that can do things that, you know, <laughs> would take you, hours and after effects, especially on like the VFX side of like, you know, removing something or like motion tracking or some of the stuff that like, you know, visual effects artists, you know, it takes them, it's very expensive and very time consuming for something now that some of these apps can do just, you know, with the auto button. Um, so technology just continues to advance. It's really, it's, it's great. It's a great toolkit there's so many choices that it can be a little overwhelming, I think. Um, and, and and easy to lose sight of kind of the purity of filmmaking. Uh, but, but I think we now more than ever have, you know, a toolbox that we've never had before. And, you know, going back to me talking about like reel to reel on VHS to now you can do things in your phone that like, you know, James Cameron was doing, you know, groundbreaking (laughs) stuff, you know, with a VFX house that probably had a computer the size of a living room and, you know, a render arm and stuff that took months to render out. It really is true, Brian. Like, like really all you need to know is the order of operations and, and what your sort of app suite will be. And you can get it done from your phone. Um, We're going to share, we mean, meaning Bonsai Creative, we're going to share a, a video in our upcoming newsletter that was uh, it's a music video. It's completely created by AI. It was created by f- including the music and the singing. Wow. Four or five different AIs used to make it. Now, would you do better? Yes. 
uh, is it incredible? For now. Yeah. For yeah. Now. <laughs> and so uh, we might end up putting that link in the show notes for this this episode just because it might coincide, it might dovetail the release of this along with the newsletter, just so people can just click on that and just geek out. And I can send it to you offline. You just you'll 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 geek out about it. Um, just really quickly, you mentioned your pitch. What when you and Jeff put a pitch together? What makes for a great pitch in your mind? How do you know it's going to be a winning pitch? What has to be there? Storytelling. I mean, that's that's what it boils down to, right? Is your, um, I mean, it's it's a pitch in any any form of you know business or commerce is like you're trying to have the buyer or or your audience understand the narrative of how you seeing success play out, right? So okay. whether that's a business plan, whether that's you know a scripted feature film pitch or whether that's, you know, a commercial pitch for, you know, Burger King, like it's, everything is about telling a story and helping them see your vision for a successful end product and, and like how that goes. So whether that's, you know, through visuals, um, I always think that, that visual storytelling, I'm a visual learner. So that, that's always where I try to lean into is not to have it be too, too dense, too text heavy. Um, just try to simplify it as much as you can. I mean, that's, that's kind of like one oh one in filmmaking in, in particular, especially as like a writer is like, if you can't, if you can't tell, if you can't sell your idea in, in you know, they call it the elevator pitch or whatever. Like if you can't sell your idea in a couple sentences, then you don't have a good idea because you need to be able to distill it down to its basic form um, yeah. because that's how it needs to be marketed. That's how, you know, the general public needs to understand it. So try to do that, you know, try to get really, um, really concise with, with how you're, how you're selling the product visually, how you're weaving that narrative. And then obviously trying to figure out and anticipate all of the holes that, that you're, you know, audience will will poke in that and, and getting ahead of that and kind of having answers for all of that. This idea of asking yourself, how do I lose, not how do I win? Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, in one-on-one sessions I've said before is go review your favorite websites as a good practice for pitching yeah. and at least at least learning how to be concise with language and being a better copywriter. Yeah. Because websites that are great have no wasted words. They put one sentence in giant bold and that sentence pretty much tells you what they do. And if you scroll up one more page, that next sentence in bold will tell you who the hero is, who the enemy is. And, and they're the guide basically. It's like a, it's just like hero's journey. uh, If you look at websites. And so there really is a connection between storytelling and and your, your favorite websites as well, just as a, just as a, add on an amendment to what you said. Cause I think that was beautiful, beautiful advice. Yeah. And, and I think what you said about the, the, um, think of anticipate the no is it's easy to convince yourself in like a positive feedback loop. of <laughs> I have a great idea. This is great. But yeah, yeah. you, you want to, you want to come cause most of your gatekeepers are coming from a no, right? Like they, they're starting at a no you're starting at a yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you need to go and be in their minds and start at a no and convince and figure out how to convince them and get them to a yes. So, yeah, yeah I said that on a panel. I said, as an investor in, in films, I'm looking for reasons to disqualify the movie right. as a default right. because I have to. Right. And so it's 
That is a that is exactly right. That's a great point. Um, what are the what are the best pieces of advice you've received in your career so far, Brian? Hmm. Good question. Um, you know, I something that my parents instilled in me uh, since childhood is is be humble, be kind. You know, always treat people well. I think probably in every industry, but specifically in the film industry. Um, there it's a, it's a pretty small, <laughs> it's, it, it feels big and scary, but, but in the end it's a pretty small community. So if you start treating people poorly or, or, you know, acting a certain way, it will come back to bite you. I mean, even like yep. the, you know, one of the mantras is like, be nice to the assistants because they're probably going to be your gatekeeper in a couple of years. So like, you know, there's no, you know, try to check your ego at the door. Um, so that was something that, you know, my, my parents instilled in me young, but one of the things that, that I was told early on, and now I tell people and kind of keep trying to convince myself of is that you'll come into any industry and think that everyone around you knows more than you and that, you know, everybody's an expert in what they do and what the, in, in their field, but everyone has imposter syndrome and no one really knows what they're doing. <laughs> Everyone's kind of figuring it out as they go. Um, and I think it's that again, freedom of freedom of being able to make mistakes and not know and ask questions. Um, I think it is really important. So that was something that was told to me early on, uh, is that, you know, someone that I respected that, that had worked in the upper echelons of the entertainment business and said, don't overthink it. You know, we're all making it up. We're all figuring it out as we go. Yeah. A really, really wonderful piece of advice. Um, in the same vein, you are frankly around a lot of people in film all the time. Some of them are new, even down to PAs. So what are the biggest mistakes you see filmmakers make and, and what advice would you give to avoid those mistakes? Uh, it's mistakes, mistakes that I made early on. Um, I, the thing that I see, I think is the, as the number one mistake other than, you know, I think there's a general sense of immediacy that everyone wants when they start out uh, in the business. And I think that's happening more and more now because of social media and kind of TikTok and Instagram, you know, how people can become famous so quickly uh, mm -hmm. is that there's a sense of, I hate to use the word entitlement because I feel like that's what like millennials and Gen Z keep getting, you know, thrown at them all the time. But um, right. I have noticed that there's, that there is a sense of like, I'm already, I should already be here without all these steps in between and not kind of respecting the process, respecting, respecting the hierarchy. Um, so I think that's a mistake, uh, is to not realize that, you know, similar to the, what's the mantra of music, like you have to put in your 10,000 hours or whatever it is in order to right, master right. Or, or I guess to master anything, right? Like you have to put in your 10,000 hours. Tipping point idea. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think it's, it's that and like knowing that, uh, it's about the journey, not the destination, you know, put in your work, uh, you know, be humble, know your, know your place. But, I, but the number one mistake that I see is specifically in filmmaking. And especially if you want to be a writer or a writer director is that at like whatever project you're working on is the project that is going to be our project. Right. And, yeah. and you're doing, you're, you keep writing and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and putting all of your energy into one project. 
because you're convinced that that's going to be the, that's going to be your break. That's going to be your project. That's going to be the thing. There are obviously examples of that working. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, they're yeah. famous and people write books about it and you romanticize Robert it. Rodriguez. Right. Robert Rodriguez, Amarachi, that kind of stuff. There's a reason why you can only point to a few of those and they're like leg legend in the industry, right? Because that's very rarely the case. Um, and uh, like I said earlier, just be prolific and diversify your portfolio of work and just put in those 10,000 hours and don't put them all into one, the same project over and over and over. Um, right. I did that with a couple different scripts uh, where I got stuck in that cycle of just rewriting and rewriting and, and, you know, I would take every note from every person and try to like keep making it. And it just, it lost its, its identity of what the original idea even was, but even more so it was wasting my time. Like I could have been working on the next thing and, yeah. and iterate all of that iterating could have been to make me a better writer to get to the project down the road. That is the project versus like just continually rewriting the same project. So that that's another trap that I see a lot of young filmmakers um, fall into is just obsessing over one project instead of just letting it go and moving on to the next thing. You know, this is, we're over 300 episodes and I don't think anyone's ever said that. And I, that's remarkable to me. I, I could be wrong. We've done a lot of these episodes, but it's great advice. And because I actually see that all the time, yeah. that whole eggs in one basket thing. It's, it's crazy. Um, what is Riverside Entertainment's approach to P&A or branding and marketing? We're trying to get better at it. <laughs> we, <laughs> it, it. It has definitely been an Achilles heel for me, especially I, I, I don't like, uh, you know, the, the, even the appearance of like self-congratulation. So marketing's yeah. uh, icky and feels weird, but as a company, it's a lot easier because you're like celebrating the collective. We, it's not like about, right. you. um, so, uh, you know, we've, social media is a huge component. I think Instagram is a great medium for a production company because you can kind of, you know, showcase your work and, and you, it's a very visual medium. So for, for us, that's a great, a great platform to do that. Um, we, we do work with a publicist. So like whenever, whenever we do have projects to, to try to talk about or get, you know, traction in trades or, you know, get press around, um, we'll use a publicist, uh, to help get that done. Um, we, you know, a lot of it for us is word of mouth and reputation. Obviously we work on the website and, and all of it trying to create like a cohesive brand, cohesive narrative of what we do, which is really difficult because we, we are all over the place. Like we're not, you know, it's a lot easier for some of these companies that like specialize in outdoors content or only do doc content or only do reality TV or only do, you know, high end glossy commercials or only do network promo. Well, we kind of do all of that. So it's hard for us to kind of roll that into one brand, one identity that's easy to market. Um, but where we've kind of found our sweet spot is again, going back to what you said on the website is trying to figure out what is that one sentence that kind of defines us is that we're just great storytellers that can elevate any project for our client and, and, and create great stories with, you know, exceptional production quality and, and at a reasonable cost. So that's really where we try to find our, found our sweet spot and, 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 and leaned into the marketing. When you have a specific project, do you outsource for the branding and marketing or do you guys try to do it in house? Well, a lot of them are, 
uh, you know, work for hires with, with clients that have their own teams that, that pretty okay. much handle most of that. So if it's like a commercial or, you know, or let's say bluebird, for example, bluebird. Yeah. Bluebird's a def- totally different beast. So anything original, uh, that's like wholly original, which bluebird was, um, we, uh, we didn't get a ton of support from our distributors, which we were hoping for a little bit more of. Uh, so it, it actually was, uh, pretty much solely on us. We tried to leverage a lot of the talent and relationships and artist relationships that we had in the film. Right. The yeah. community community aspects and Bluebird is so beloved um, within the artist and, and songwriter community to try to get you know amplification through f- through them. Um, right. We worked with a with a really phenomenal. Um, her name's Julie Dansker. Uh, she kind of came on to consult us and help us uh, figure out how to get better placement on on iTunes. She came up with a great strategy to. Um, to, to get it onto the homepage of, of, uh, of Apple TV's, you know, main page that got it to the that, that, that first row, that top row. Yeah, yeah. 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 Which got it to the number one documentary on iTunes that week, which was incredible. So it was just a lot of like kind of, uh, homegrown ground level efforts. Uh, we did have a publicist that helped with a, a few things here and there. Um, there's a lot of lessons learned again, that was, a, that was, there's a lot of mistakes that were made that, that we're now, you know, learning from and, and all of those learnings are going into our next projects and, and how to improve that process. You mentioned 10,000 hours, Brian, that's a reference to the book tipping point by Malcolm yeah. Gladwell. Are there any other books you can recommend to creatives? Oh yeah. Let's see. That's a great one. Um, um, the War of Art was one that I read years ago. Wow. Uh, it's a good one. I'm reading that now. Yeah. Um, I mean, from a, from a like straight, I've had it forever and just now reading it. Yeah. From a filmmaking perspective, um, if you're a writer, I really love Sid Field. He, he has a book called Screenplay, which is great. It's more like kind of a theory type book, but the one that I, that I really like because it had more like practical elements of like, putting things into action was, uh, it's called, it's called the screenwriter's workbook. I think Sid field, yeah. Sid, Sid fields field. Yeah. Um, I, I'm a sucker for the Robert, the romance of Robert Rodriguez. So rebel without yeah. true is kind of, you know, the one that I read in film school that I really loved. Um, yeah. as I, uh, was starting to get into like the independent side, there's, there's several good books on like independent filmmaking. There's like the, the produced, I think it's like the producer's, survival guide or something like that. It might be like independent mm. producers survival guide. Um, and then there's a, there's another one. If you're, if you're wanting to write for TV and not film, uh, there's another great book uh, called the TV writer's workbook. I want to say the author's okay. name is Ellen. She's, she, I forget which, I think she wrote for like everybody loves Raymond. Um, but it's a great, if you, if you want, if you want to understand so a lot of the like kind of entry barriers for television, especially, are not understanding the format and kind of being intimidated by like, how am I supposed to do this? How many acts are in a, you know, a television pilot? Like, should I be writing a spec pilot for a show that already exists or should I be writing an original pilot? And you know, what are the story beats? How should I end an act? Like, how do I structure this? Because, you know, if you're a good writer, it doesn't necessarily mean you understand how to fold into the kind of machine that already exists. Um, that, that machine's becoming a lot more fluid now with, with all the different, you know, mechanisms of delivery with streaming and everything, but, um, the fundamentals are still more or less the same. So that's a good book to kind of, to, uh, to pull the curtain back from the wizard of Oz and not have yeah, yeah. It so intimidating. And, you know, same thing with the screenwriters workbook is it really kind of boils it down to like the core elements that 
any great movie have. It seems like impossible to to write something as you know perfect as Goodwill Hunting or you know Shawshank yeah. Redemption or something. But then when you break it down and really look at like the like you said the hero's journey and like here's the different act points and here's like the plot points. And it is a kind of a formula, even though you know it's it's you want to create like your original spin on that. Yeah, there was an app I used to use called Contour that um, Ellen Sandler says producer Papa Bear, by yes, the way. Ellen Sandler. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. And it, 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 would, it, it would allow you to break down your script by beat. And if you couldn't fill out those beats, you knew you didn't follow the God properly. Like you knew you were missing certain plot points. Yep. It was basically an algorithm that says most winning screenplays have. Yep this many plot points by act one, two, three. Yep. It reminded me of like that, that songwriting book, Jason Bloom wrote, yeah. wrote back in the day where it's yep. like, these are how many syllables are in a, you know, a three sentence stanza. And, you know, most times if you get this, you're going to hit, you know, the ear the right way. Right. And um, just, and this is how long a good radio intro is. Right. Like it, it's, um, I don't, I'm not saying that everybody should write screenplays or songs that robotically, but I remember using Jason Bloom's method to be practiced in it. I would go right. to Fido, a coffee shop um, in this place called Hillsborough Village, and I would grab newspapers. They would have free newspapers just sitting around. So I would just grab them. And me being a journalism major, I know that there's a separate job called headline writer. And so it's a job. And so they're not all created equal, just like any other industry. Some are good headline writers, some are bad. So I would take these ones, I'd read all the headlines, like, oh, that's a killer headline. And I would just write the headline and then I would write the song. Oh, I love that. Headline. And then I would go across the street to Vanderbilt and try to put chords to it. And what was crazy about that is the students would be in there because they thought I was a student there and they would give me an instant feedback loop. They knew who I was at that point. They were like, Chris, that one's not good. Or that one's that one I would they would literally say, Chris, that one I would buy if it were recorded. It was amazing. That's awesome. It was such an amazing, yeah. uh, amazing process. So I, I totally, uh, totally dig what you're putting down there. And yeah, it's one of those things where you come out of like when you're, you know, an ambitious kid with with all of the courage in the world, and you think that you're going to be the, you know, you're going to change the game, right? Like you're going to do, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to follow some formula. Like, you know, David Lynch <laughs> didn't follow a formula. It's like, yeah, well, you know, it's one guy, uh, who, right. who's like, you know, a genius and, and arguably not that commercial. So you look at like, you know, your favorite films. And when you do break them down that way and you're like, no, yeah, yep. it did. Oh, it followed it to a T. Oh yeah. On page it's, it's like a magician revealing the, the secret to the trick. Yeah, exactly. It, it can either make you feel stupid or it can make you so enlightened. Like I choose the latter. I choose the optimistic side of everything. So it's like, no, I'm not going to sit there and be like pissed off that I fell for something. Yeah. No, it's a, there's a trick to it. There's a little formula in the background. And once the trick is revealed, you know how to do it going forward. And the limit is just your create your creativity. Um, your friends, Brooke and Bryce. Yeah. Uh, they have a show produced by a friend of this podcast, Sarah Coonan, ah. who uh, we love and and has done a wonderful interview on this. So you guys can go back and listen to our interview with the wonderful Sarah Coonan. Um, I know that you work with Brooke and Bryce and Sarah 
and they posted, Brooke and Bryce posted on Instagram just the other day that they're off for a well-deserved, much needed vacation. They're back now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it was like in perfect timing. I get it. Uh, and it made me think like, even for people who have what they want per se, there's still like rest. There's still, there's still a place where the darkness can seep in. And so I was just wondering if you've ever been in a, in a dark place yourself in this business, a lot of creatives get in that dark place. And, and if so, how did you get through it? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's been a couple times. I mean, you know, those, those years in LA where I kind of, before I got the gig at ABC, when you have so many close calls and, and you, uh, you start to doubt, you know, your ability and like, how is this going to go? How old am I going to be before I finally, you know, I need to get my life going, you know? So there's that kind of like starting out. Um, there was a few times where, you know, you start to get down on yourself and really start to kind of doubt the path mm. you're on. Um, but then I would say even like as with the success of the company, um, there's been, a, there's been a couple instances where, there's either misunderstandings or, um, just uncomfortable, you know, situations that happen, whether it's internally or externally with, 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 uh, collaborators or colleagues or, you know, internal people on your team where there's doubt and, or, or, you know, failures and, and things that, that are scrutinized that then kind of send you down the rabbit hole again of like, is this the right path? And does this, you know, so yeah, I think that's, that's natural. And I think it's healthy because a lot of times that'll kind of purge you of any sort of negativity that, that shouldn't exist, um, and help to kind of give you the clarity of, of who, who to partner with, how to move forward, um, how to communicate better with your team, um, and, and sometimes it just airs a lot of things that, that have gone unsaid. Um, and then for me, there's, the, there's been a couple times where this business, uh, like many, um, you know, I mean, surely music, uh, but, but this one as well is, is it's hard to juggle and maintain a good family balance, uh, a family life with, uh, the, with your career, uh, making modern was an, I had my second child, uh, my wife had my, our second child, um, uh, right, right. As we were beginning. You helped, bro. <laughs> yeah. What's that? <laughs> you helped. I helped. Yeah. Uh, she did most of it. Uh, <laughs> like right around when we were actually going into to production on, on making modern on, on that show. And yeah. that, that created friction on both sides, honestly. Cause I felt like if I was paying too much attention to the show, I was letting, uh, you know, my, my wife who was postpartum and, you know, dealing with, with uh, a newborn and sleep deprivation, all those things, or if I was focusing too much on the family, I was neglecting the show. Um, so that's always hard. And same thing happened with Bluebird actually, right, right. As we, um, had our first child, uh, is right. We were kind of in the thick of it with Bluebird and, and I was so obsessed with, cause it was kind of my, my opus, right? Like, yeah. uh, I became so obsessed with it. I was, and I was honestly, I took on too many roles with that project. Um, you know, producing, directing, editing, like all of it. So, um, that kind of consumed me and, and it forced me to miss out on a couple of things, uh, as a father and, and a husband. So I think there, those are probably the, the dark times that I can recall offhand, but those again, it's just, it's finding that balance and finding that rhythm and, and figuring out your priorities and learning how to say no to things and, and learning how to manage your time better and, and, uh, and grow as, 
grow as a, as a person. <laughs> no, I love that, man. And, and speaking of time, you've, you've been, really been incredible with yours and uh, I just can't thank you enough. I only have a few questions left, maybe, maybe one and, and we'll get you out of here. Can you tell this audience the key differences between directing a person and directing the Aflac duck? <laughs> Oh man, was that that was that was one for the ages? Uh, well, you know the the duck uh, <laughs> the duck requires a secondary duck. So here, here's the secret behind the Affleck duck. Uh, okay, when you see it shake its tail feather, or you see it say Affleck, uh, that's typically because there's a it's a male duck. Most likely is the duck on camera. And there's likely a handler holding a female duck in front of the male duck to get him excited. And that's why he shakes his tail feather and starts quacking because he's horny and he wants to get amazing. the female duck. Um, so that was, that was the true comedy and kind of genius behind any of that happened. So for everyone listening, uh, if you go onto Riverside, Dash ENT.com. Uh, you'll, I think, be able to find under our branded section the Aflac series that we did. It was a CMA partnership where the Aflac duck goes on his journey through the uh, to become a musician in Nashville from busking mm-hmm. on Broadway through the Bluebird to playing his Opry debut at the Grand Ole Opry and eventually ending up on the red carpet at the CMAs with Trace Adkins. Um, oh, I love it. And it's a real duck. A real duck, and uh, we've got some great BTS photos as well of, of our uh, of our uh, our Steadicam movie operator uh, Sam Willie uh, with a with like a duck quacker in his mouth, trying to get the duck to look at him and quack, and he was just yeah, it, it's that was a fun one. It's just it's just funny because you know you assume there's a lot of things going on and it just turns out just get the duck horny he'll perform get the duck horny i mean it's the same yeah, with people right you know it's right right really get them horny and, yeah. and everything will work out just fine ryan this this is this has been incredible man I, I i can't tell you how much it means to to us to have you on a lot of wisdom in this one a lot of uh didactic a lot of education a lot of inspiration so that that makes for a perfect episode in my book can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media on the internet maybe see some of your work and make sure to plug where people can see uh Brooke and Bryce's show as well. I'm going to try to do this uh, laughing after uh, the uh, producer the, Papa Bear. Yeah. Dropped, the chat uh, that was just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason I'm really thirsty for some wine right now. <laughs> oh man. All right. Uh, so let's start with Riverside Entertainment. You can find us on Instagram at riverside.ent. Uh, I believe that's the same handle, but I'm not sure. We're not that active on Twitter. Uh, you can find us on LinkedIn. Uh, mine is at Brian Loesch. That's L-O-S-C-H, Brian with an I. And um, riverside-ent.com is our website. If you, uh, if you want to reach out, need to reach out, contact at riverside-ent.com. And um, Making Modern with Brooke and Bryce airs uh, on, you can find it on the Magnolia Network, on Discovery Plus, or on HBO Max. We are having, season three will be announced, and uh, so season three should kick off this summer. 
but you can find the first two seasons uh, there on those on those platforms. And uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a great home re- home renovation show with a little bit of a twist. Uh, Brooke, uh, the wife of the couple, is the builder, and Bryce, the husband, is a designer. They're here in Nashville. Yeah. Uh, they've got a modern twist on a lot of what you're used to seeing on home reno shows, so it's a lot of fun. And a lot of a lot of fun DIY takeaways that you can do as well. Brooks a Brooks a wizard at at uh, doing you know the uh, the customizations and and fun DIY projects. Yeah, she she really is. She she's she's remarkable. Uh, as are you. And we'll end on this. Give us the pitch for why we should all double down on pickleball. Man, it is the fastest growing sport in America. Two years going. Where did you get all this information? Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm completely obsessed. It's, uh, you know, it's like if, if you're a little too slow to be good at tennis and, uh, and you want a little bit more exercise than playing ping pong, pickleball is your sport. Pickleball is, but you're standing on the table. That's right. Yeah. It's like yeah. standing on a giant ping pong table. Yeah. You said it's the second fastest growing sport in America? Oh, it's the fastest, my friend, for two years. Oh, fastest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, fastest growing sport in America. Holy moly! All right, man. Yeah, I'll a friend. I have, one more I have a friend called. named Velvet Hammer that tried to get me into pickleball, and I haven't. I haven't. I said pickleball, but I shouldn't have shunned it. Right? No, you got to try it, man. We'll, I'll take you out. We'll, okay. We'll, we'll play some pickleball. We'll grab a beer after. Yeah. Make okay. All right. One more I'm, plug. I'm, one more plug. Yeah, please. Uh, Riverside's gotten into scripted. That's kind of a big, a big shift that we're making. Um, and we were just in Berlin for the Berlin film festival world premiere of Mana Drum, which will be uh, Riverside's first foray into scripted features starring Jesse Eisenberg yeah. and Adrian Brody, hopefully coming to you in 2023, maybe early 2024. Um, but yeah, shout out, shout out to that film. So, uh, if you, if you see it pop up, go see it. Hell yeah. That's, that's awesome. I cannot wait. And I think there's a lot of places where our circles create a Venn diagram. So I know we're going to stay in touch offline outside of pickleball and beer as well. And, uh, anybody that's listening, you know, where to go, uh, to, to learn more about the make it podcast. Of course, you can always go to bonsai.film, www.bonsai.film. You can find us on social media at underscore Bonsai Creative. And again, why not Bonsai Creative? Because there's a sweet British gentleman that owns it and we're waiting for him to pass away. Uh, no, I'm kidding. You're a, he's a sweet guy. I've talked to him, he, but he's not selling it to us. And uh, <laughs> the website or the, or the handle. And uh, if you want to uh, listen to this podcast and uh, not just uh, this episode, and this conversation, but any conversation, you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts and of course on youtube so with that brian talk to you soon chris it's been a pleasure man really appreciate it all mine man be good bye bye you've been listening to the make it podcast to find more information about this week's topics including links to relevant blog posts projects and indie creatives please visit our website at www.banzai.film If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at underscore Bonsai Creative, and on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. 
In addition, you can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film forward slash donate. Donations start at only $5 monthly. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your film's financial success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of branding and marketing packages and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.